From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and Director of the ICS. Due to the ongoing pandemic, we're not in studio, but are recording remotely via phone and computer. As always, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University is located in the Great Black Swamp, long a meeting place of the Wyandotte, Shawnee, Lenape, Ottawa, Kickapoo, Fox, Potawatomi, Erie, Miami, Peoria, Chippewa, and Seneca Indian tribes. We honor the rich history of this land and its indigenous inhabitants past and present. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by two guests, Dr. Steve Cady and Professor Charlie Canwisher. Steve is the director of the Institute for Organizational Effectiveness at BGSU. He's world-renowned for his expertise in organizational behavior and development, specifically with a focus on whole system change. His current work involves collaborating with others to develop the best of both online and in-person learning environments. Charlie is the director of the School of Art and a professor of drawing at BGSU. He's a six-time recipient of an Ohio Arts Council Individual Artist Fellowship. In his administrative role, Charlie studies data to determine what students need to succeed in online learning environments. Steve and Charlie, thank you for joining me today to talk about leadership. The COVID-19 pandemic has certainly exemplified the need for the kind of work you do to model collaborative leadership and meet the needs of students, faculty, and staff to deal with this swiftly changing academic landscape. Steve, could you start us off by talking about how your work was immediately impacted in March when the university moved to distance learning and what changes you made? So my work is on two levels. One is in the classroom with my students. And then on the second level is my work with my colleagues, you two and others at BGSU and beyond. On the first level, uh, I immediately uh, talked with my students. And when I saw what was coming on the horizon, that we'd likely close down and we'd likely shut classes or go into a online setting, I talked with my students and I talked to them about various scenarios. I talked with them about scenarios in the class. If we go online, this is what's going to happen. This is where we're going to meet online. This is how we're going to make it work. And this is how I'm going to handle the class, how we're going to handle uh, your uh, learning as well as your grading and and those kinds of things, and really made sure that they had their questions answered. I also encouraged them to think about how they were going to handle it, what their scenarios were, and what they were going to do. And I gave that advice to some other faculty that I was talking to, and they did that. And they said that it was pretty amazing uh, that all of a sudden, when it happened, their students knew what to do, where to go. It's kind of like that emergency, like in a fire or whatever. Where do we meet? Where do we regroup? That kind of thing. So that was number one. That was that was really important. And the second thing is uh, I sent a note out to my friends and my colleagues and people and said, let's get together and support each other. What can we do to help each other? What can we learn from each other? How can we help each other and get better ideas on what to do in this moment? What emerged from that was... 170 people 
uh, like instantly showing up, signing up, uh, met on a Wednesday, uh, over a hundred people showed up, said, you want to meet on Friday? Another hundred people showed up. You want to meet on Saturday? Another hundred and something showed up. Want to meet on Sunday? Another hundred and something showed up. And we were meeting like almost every day. And then we started meeting weekly. And what came out of that is the importance of community, uh, and the importance of supporting each other and the use of zoom and the use of video conferencing to be able to see each other while not ideal, it does work. How about you, Charlie? How did that transition play out both in your role as a professor and as director of the School of Art? Well, it was on us so suddenly. That's what I remember. You know, we were face to face one week. I guess we were reading news reports. You know, we were sort of seeing, sensing this freight train coming at us. But then it was on us in a rush. And I I can specifically remember a faculty meeting, you know, we called an emergency faculty meeting when we understood that we would be closing down for what I remember was presented to us as two weeks. We were going to take a two-week pause. We were going to suspend face-to-face classes for two weeks. And I remember really the, the, you know, the sort of the sense of disbelief and the sense of uh, trepidation that the faculty expressed in this meeting that we conducted to sort of figure out where we were going with the, uh, you know, the reaction to the initial shutdown. And then it was an issue of, uh, well, two weeks became a month, right? A month became the rest of the semester. Uh, The rest of the semester shaded into getting ready for the fall and knowing that we would have to prepare over the course of the summer. So a big part, I think, of my relationship with the faculty that I'm directing, the faculty that I'm working with, it was kind of leading them through the, um, the gradual amplification of the situation, you know, sort of approaching it in stages. And I can remember faculty talking about, um, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? Have you read this article? It's telling us we can't do, you know, we can't engage in this set of behaviors anymore. We can't get, engage in these kinds of teaching practices anymore. And, and I remember going back um, again and again to the ideas, here's what we know now. Here's what we can put in the firm column. You know, this is something that we have a little bit of certainty about. It's not a whole lot. But we have to use that to begin to project into the future. So, so what I found, I guess, was that leading the school at that moment was not just about the moment. It wasn't just about the situation we were in in that particular moment. It was, it was trying to create, I guess, the right kind of mental attitude, the right kind of response toward an inevitably shifting, unfolding future, if that makes sense. When you are dealing with a moment of such profound uncertainty and constant change, right? That the information, the decisions were not being made once and then decided for a semester, but that week by week, day by day, there might be changes needing to be made. That a big piece of what was effective was actually being really transparent with students and with colleagues about what is known, what isn't, and the fact that there are going to be lots of things the answer is, I don't know, great question. Let's figure it out. Let's talk about it. I think it's interesting to that that's so important because I the tendency I think a lot of folks have during a time of crisis is to feel like what is demanded of them when in leadership positions is to be decisive and create structure and to be sort of rigid and that that is going to be more comforting to people. Could you talk, Steve, maybe a bit about what your own research interests in change management reveals about how people actually best respond to stress and change? Yeah, people support, defend that which they help to create. And what's interesting is, is when we're in a learning environment, learning by its nature is about failure. It's about trying taking risks in a safe space and and learning at a deep level. And so 
when you look at collaboration and you look at leadership, we have spent how many centuries in rows and aisles in classrooms where you sit and you're talked at, you raise your hand when you're talked to, and you rewire the neural, neural pathways in the brain to learn to be a very much a linear, responsive thinker in which you don't think for yourself. Yet, the core value of education is we want to empower and inspire students to be leaders, to go out in the world, and to be thinkers and to solve problems. So tell me one organization that you go in and sit in rows and aisles when you go out and work. Tell me one, show me one place where you're going to sit and be talked at and only speak and, and answer questions and regurgitate or repeat what you've been taught. So prove that you know what, you, what I'm talking about by repeating it back. Give me one example where that's life. It's not. And yet we spend from early childhood all the way through college and where it's changing now, active learning, engaged learning is really, you know, the flip classroom, it's all coming back. But for years, and we're just now starting to get to it, for years, that's all we've done. So now we create conditions where people go into the work, they sit, and they say, tell me what to think, tell me what to do, where do I go, and what can I do? And it's like, you know, auto, automating, you know, it's appalling, to be honest with you. So, change. If you want to teach people, and you want to lead truly innovative, exciting places where people are joyful wrestling with ideas, becoming, bringing their whole self into a situation, you know, bringing their mind, their body, their spirit, and their emotion. They don't just check their brain at the door and told, be told what to do and don't share their emotions because it's not, a, not appropriate and they can't be themselves. And, and they're taught that at school. And before you know it, they go home and they have relationship problems because there's emotionally detachment from their kids, from their wives, from their, their husbands, their partners, whatever it might be. And we have created an instructional education system that I think teaches us to be half-brained and half-human. And I think that we are now on the cusp, on the edge of a renaissance in terms of unleashing the whole human being into what is possible. And that is being advocated by all the learning and so forth. So collaborative leadership or leaders who are in environments and changing environments, They've been taught they have to have the answer because everybody keeps telling them to have the answer. It's not their fault. And it's not. And, and people might say, well, you should be transparent. You should be. Well, when they're transparent, then, then the, the people that are followers take it out on them passive aggressively. Use the information against them. Say that they're weak. It's just feeding into the same formula. Then there's a few brave, wise leaders and it's beginning to emerge and it's coming out in the science and the research that the whole brain is necessary for great leadership. And you get leaders that then step out and step into that space and they lead and they engage people and they let them fail and learn. They call fail forward now. They call it the training, letting people fail forward into new learning and innovation, bringing diverse groups together. It's easy to collaborate when you're with the homogeneous group. But you take a diverse group, it takes a lot longer to get to a place of functioning. Who wants to take the time to get there when you're in a hurry to show results? So leaders have got to be willing to step out and allow followers to push on them, to test them, to see if they really believe in this new kind of leadership that they're bringing forward. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. Um, uh, identifying creativity as, a, as an integral element in leadership. I, um, from our point of view in the School of Art, it kind of goes without, goes without saying our issues are a little bit different. You know, we are a, a collection of 
makers, studio practitioners. And, you know, our practices are based on trial and error and adaptivity and iterative. And, uh, you know, we're used to workarounds and uh, coming up with alternative solutions when one solution isn't working. Um, we have that culture, you know, uh, we're in possession of a culture, you know, in lots of ways has stood as well in this, in this crisis, you know, going back to the pasta makers and the glass pipes and all the at-home kits that faculty were, were putting together for students so they could work away from our, from our studios, you know, that creativity was in abundance where maybe um, we face a little bit of a different problem than what Steve might be referring to or what might be going on in the more, the more traditional academic areas on campus is our need is to harness that creativity in some way, um, to take all those people flying in different directions and help them establish a sense of collectivity, of collective purpose, of collective response to um, you know, the situation that we we're facing in the spring and, and you know, that's ongoing. Not that we want everyone to be on the same page. You know, we embrace that variety as a strength, that diversity as a strength, that diversity not just of, uh, you know, of media, all the different things that we teach in the school, but diversity of intellectual approach, conceptual approach. It stood us very well, but the difficulty as a leader, the challenge as a leader, has been to um, arrive at consensus in the midst of all that, in the midst of all that diversity. A, a consensus, you know, on certain policies about how we're going to conduct our classes, consensus about, you know, the most effective modality for teaching a given discipline. It's been interesting. I've never believed more strongly that the culture that you move into the crisis with is the culture that sort of determines the response to the crisis. You know, if we have a strong sense of community, if we have good communication, if we have a sense of transparency and fairness in the school moving into the, you know, difficult situation, then um, it seems like we're much better prepared for, you know, the unforeseen, you know, the sorts of things that a crisis like this is going to throw at you. I think one of the things you're both talking about is in some ways, and this has come up in other conversations this season in talking about the pandemic, is that it has created certain opportunities by throwing us off our well-entrenched habits, right? And it's forced those in positions of authority, teachers in classrooms, directors of departments or schools, um, to acknowledge and to have to model adaptability, creativity, a willingness to say, yep, I got that wrong. Okay, let's regroup. And then that becomes empowering for those, whether you're students or it's, you know, the members of that department, school community to say, oh, I see my leader modeling this thing. Okay, I can try and fail too. Because I think a lot of times what happens is we say we want our students to be creative, to take risks, but then we in the position of authority actually don't really demonstrate our own flexibility and willingness to take risks. It's like, well, I've had this assignment. I know how it works. I'm going to keep doing it this way. And this moment has made that really impossible um, in ways that are kind of freeing at times. I'll just say what's empowering in that is when a faculty member partners with the students and, it, and it intentionally invites the students to partner with them in finding a new solution and saying, let's figure this out together. Students are have been super helpful. Yeah, they know things that we don't, right? And they often really do have an understanding of how to make better use of digital environments, of other ways of communicating and connecting. Um, that can be really transformative. You start a class, you open a Zoom, and you say, who can help me monitor the chat room? And so someone says, I'll do that. And so they help you monitor the chat room. And then they, I'll say, can you all summarize what's going on in the chat? And then someone else 
uh, say, can someone else do this here and, and kind of help us pull up a screen and we'll create a collective document that we're going to work in. And so I'll do that. And then so while they're doing that, I'm focusing on this and we together are doing, you know, the class. It's almost a cliche by now that we're not going back to the way things were before the before the pandemic, you know. Um, but we're also recognizing a lot of opportunity in that. The adaptations we've made, the flexibility we've demonstrated, the fact that, you know, we can offer content now in multiple modalities with different kinds of tools that faculty don't necessarily have to be present on campus, that they can be at home in a more flexible environment. Some of our faculty are actually in other countries. You know, we have one faculty member teaching full-time from Canada right now, and another faculty member teaching full-time from Italy. They're both engaged in research projects at the same time that they're teaching and doing service you know, the kinds of technological bridges that we've been able to make, the kinds of technological structures we've been able to make are um, allowing a kind of flexibility and fluidity on the part of faculty that is, you know, unprecedented. We've never, we've never been in this kind of situation uh, before. You know, we've, we've also found that uh, students who maybe are shy when they're in face-to-face -face critiques, uh, unwilling to talk, you know, because one or two people are taking over conversations, we're finding it's much more democratic when they're online that some of those shy students are speaking up. And, and, and actually, some of the conversations that we're having around the work are more, more engaged, more robust than what we experienced in the face-to-face -face classroom. So, Yeah, there really is. In some ways, there's a kind of leveling of some of those power dynamics in that move to the two-dimensional screen where everyone can be a stakeholder and they can choose what kind of role that is, right, whether it's through the chat or speaking. I have a question for you, Charlie, about kind of your own work as an artist. How have you been impacted by this move? And what is your working life like? Like every artist I know, um, I've had shows canceled. Opportunities that would have happened are not going to happen. In some cases canceled, in some cases postponed. Um, so on a professional level, the the pandemic's had a big impact just on, you know, the the art world and the number of shows that are taking place and the attendance at exhibitions and, you know, galleries have had to close, museums have had to close, you know, this sort of circulation that we take for granted in the art world has, has really been, you know, impaired, really been reduced. But when it comes to sort of daily working practice, and I try to work in my studio just about every day, uh, when it comes to that, that has really been a source of strength through all of this. You know, the idea that I'm, I'm going and, and, uh, you know, doing this thing, making my work, even making progress in my work, feeling like the work has a different kind of meaning, a different kind of importance even due to the pandemic, due to the situation that's created by it. That's been really important. That's been really important. That's been a source of, I don't know if it sounds like the right word, but solace or comfort or, or maybe a better way to say it is centering. It's giving me a, 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 kind, of, a kind of groundedness that allows me to deal with the, with, you know, the hyperfluidity of the situation. And I've talked to other studio uh, artists, studio-based artists, who have said the same thing, that they've never felt more connected to their practice. You know, I'm talking about the actual go into the studio, make the work, you know, the actual execution of the work. They've never felt more connected to that than they have during this, this situation. And I would, I would say that for me, it's kind of interesting. I've yearned for that more because in my position and some of the things I've chosen to do, I have spent more time really busily like holding the huddles and the other types of things. And I've noticed some of my friends have had that ability like you're talking about. And I've kind of yearned for that. I almost want to think I, I want to take some time to not be doing all these collaborative things. 
that is your craft though, right? Steve, you're a facilitator. You're a, you're a, you're a conversation sponsor. You're an expert at it. That's, that's what you do. So in a way you're, you're exercising your craft, you're practicing your craft in the in similar sort of way. Well, and I think what that also points out too is this moment makes in some ways more visible all of the different human needs we have. This gets back to your point earlier, Steve, about kind of the whole student, right? We have to understand their material needs. We have to understand their spiritual needs. We have to understand all of that before we could really get to the intellectual. But it also, I think for us as professionals, this has sort of made us realize, oh, I need more alone time, or I desperately need more connection, that I'm feeling very alone, and I I need my colleagues, I need my relationships, and sort of forcing all of us to kind of identify what are our individual needs for success. And if we recognize that, then we're in a better position to actually help our students and those we work with to similarly say, okay, what do you need? to really feel successful, centered, balanced, you know, um, able to do your best work. I guess what uh, what I would try to connect what we've just talked about too is the notion that um, I see as one of my responsibilities as leader of the School of Art is to um, remind people, to urge people, to do everything I can to assist people in finding a sense of, I don't know if this is a word, but purposefulness, purpose, you know, in what they're doing because the pandemic has shifted um, in all kinds of ways, not least of which is um, traditional outcomes for our work, you know, for my studio practice, the places that I would normally be showing it, its availability to people, uh, and true for all the faculty. A lot of that has been taken away, and we don't know when it's going to come back, and it's certainly not going to come back in the manner that it existed before. But if you think about how that impacts students, you know, we have students who are aspiring to be artists, students who are learning to be um, creators, who want to succeed on a professional level. They're looking at the radical restructuring, you know, of the world that they thought they were entering, right? And it may even mean that some professional opportunities are are closed off temporarily or shifted in, in d- different directions. So in the face of that um, sort of chaotic situation right now, in the face of that unsettledness, um, it's more important than ever for students and faculty to remind themselves, what is this really about? What is this about at a deeper level? Why are you making work? Why Why are you you putting so much effort into something that doesn't have the obvious outcomes anymore, may not have the professional visibility that it had before. You know, it really becomes about the work, you know, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes. About process, right? But it's about right. the process, right? Rather than the outcome. It, what were you going to say, Steve? Uh, in the sense that there's a great book you may be aware of. It's Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm, and, and in that, he describes people in Nazi war camps completely healthy people died. Yet there were these other folks in the camps that weren't healthy, that were injured, that were, and they survived. And he was, and he was trying to figure out as a medical doctor, how to help more people survive. And he said, one of his telltale signs that people were about to die was that they gave away their cigarettes, which was a, which, which was their currency uh, in the camp. And what he found was that the people that survived, regardless of their physical condition, were the ones that had purpose. They had some work to continue. They had, uh, in the arts, they had a, an artistic project or a, or a book to write or something to complete, or they had something that they were living for that they still had 
they were they were yearning for something that they yearned to complete and finish and it was people who had that so switch it to this so i with my students always ask them what are you yearning what difference do you yearn to make in the world what is your profession your career your job that you're going to go after that matters to you where you're going to feel a sense of purpose how is this class and how is what we're doing going to serve you and going for that and i find that in this situation, if I can keep my students focused on the prize, on the thing that they yearn for, in the midst of this, it helps them to deal with the pressures. And if they're in community sharing that, that's the other piece. It's this community of support is critical. I think I, if anything I learned in this is that we have got to create small communities of learning, communities of support, uh, Build them, create them, start them amongst the faculty, amongst the students, amongst students and faculty, administrators, everybody we need to be in community supporting each other. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about Big Ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Hello, welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today I'm talking to Dr. Steve Cady and Professor Charlie Canwisher about leadership during crisis and what we've learned about online instruction and communication. We've been talking about the importance of communication and collaboration. What are some of the factors you see that impede true collaborative leadership? at the university level or in large organizations and institutions? Well, you know, the first words that popped into my mind were uh, bureaucracy and budget. <laughs> I don't know, the, the interrelatedness of those two things. You know. uh, sponsoring interdisciplinary work, sponsoring collaborative work, it can be expensive, you know. Asking um, the university to allow two faculty members to teach a single class uh, and not simply double up the class, there's a cost to that. And you have all these sort of administrative structures and disciplinary structures that um, they just function better when everybody stays between the lines. When you're trying to cross over, when you're trying to work in between, lots of times the bureaucracy doesn't know how to categorize it, doesn't know how to evaluate it, doesn't know how to you know, measure the outcomes that emerge from it. Most of the structures we have at the university are set up for measuring you know, discrete things, categorizable things. And, and anything that seems to want to resist that or move outside of that, you know, it can be um, you know, it can be difficult to do that if not uh, even opposed. Yeah, and I would, I would offer my favorite uh, African proverb is: if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. And there's a really good book out that's called "Going Fast and Slow," and it talks about how the brain and this neuro, and not the neuroscience, but the brain science of decision making and how people uh, think. And you've got, you know, you got your executive function and then you got your um, kind of uh, instinctive uh, portion of your brain, instinctive function and uh, fight and flight and those kinds of things. They call them system one and system two in this particular book. And you got the, actually, it's interesting, you got the left and the right and the front and the back of the brain. And if you think about it, the back is about instinct. The front is about thinking and, and reflection and so forth and slowing down. You got the, the, the left side of the brain is about order, you know, logic, and, and the right side is about creativity. And so now you've got all these different parts of the brain that are engaged. And the biggest impediment 
is that people sometimes don't want to engage the whole brain. So they don't want to take the time. They want to go fast. And therefore, people want to go alone. Yet, in order to go fast and to go with others, but to go alone, the only way you can go alone with others fast is through dictation, to dictate, to direct, to force, to coerce, to make the decision and put in place the mechanisms to force people to do it. That's the only way you can do that. And then you can maybe get people to move fast because we're in that school system structure that we've trained people for many, many years to sit in rows and aisles, listen when talked to, and move quickly based on the edict that has been given out. There's a lot of other impediments, but I would describe that as a core impediment that gets in the way of true collaboration. Well, and that's the thing, right? That like we are, there are certain things that are happening fast, right? That we may have to react quickly. But what you're suggesting is if we really want to make these changes transformative and meaningful, then you're going to have to be willing to slow down, to listen to other people, right? To take time to try and adjust. And it's going to be less linear. And that may be in the short term frustrating, but in the long term, you'll get further with it. What does slowing down mean? I'm slowing down right now. I'm only taking five seconds. I take a breath. I slow down. I can slow down in a half hour. I don't have to slow. It doesn't mean slowing down for months. It's painful to slow down. So if I move and act quickly, I, it's like, let's get this over with. Let's get this over with. And so, and you watch a brilliant athlete who can just move, and you think, how do they do that so elegantly? So, I think there's a notion that fast means everything's right now, and slow means everything's way out there, you know? But actually, you can move too fast in one day or too fast in five seconds. It's about how we slow down our thinking, slow down our presence, presencing and noticing, and slowing ourselves down for that situation as appropriate, and moving at a pace that is that still keeps us moving forward. One of the things we've seen with the pandemic is that existing socioeconomic and racial disparities have gotten much worse, right? And this is on the economic front, on the health front, and this infection rates, death rates, and the economic impact. So it can be hard to sort of talk about those intersectional dimensions in the work that we do. But how do you address the ways in which not only are some communities more impacted, but also some have greater voice? How do you ensure everyone gets a say and is heard and that decisions are made with them in mind and with their shaping that, again, getting back to the fast and slow, you know, when not everyone even has equal access to the conversation. Well, that's been a hard problem because uh, you're caught in this bind. You don't want to overburden people with communication. You have to know when to communicate and when not to communicate. You have to have some discernment about what's important enough to communicate and what might not be so important that, you know, you might just be bothering people with too much communication. So uh, I view it as, you know, one of the most important characteristics you can have as a leader is that sense of proportionality, what I called discernment a moment ago. When is it necessary and in the interest of the people you're communicating with to communicate with them? And what can I take on? You know, what can I relieve them of? What sort of burden can I take off of them? 
I think it goes back to the notion, too, that inside of an entity, an organization like a school of art, you have to have pretty good governance structures. You know, and that means we have an advisory council of, you know, the leadership in the school that meets with me every week. And and then uh, we have regular faculty meetings and and the separate divisions in the side of the school are required to meet regularly so that throughout these, you know, governance structures, people feel free to uh, share and to speak up. And not only do ideas flow up to me, but they also flow down from me to everybody in the school. Uh, I feel pretty good about the way that we've communicated with faculty of course, it's students, I think, that are a little more difficult to communicate with in this situation. We don't have good communication channels in the school right now for, for getting information out to students collectively. You know, at the height of the pandemic back in spring, I was making fairly regular, consistent messages to the students through email and even through video, uh, trying to let them know what was going on. That's tapered off, though, through the summer and into the fall. I was getting feedback from students that... Email isn't really an effective way to communicate. Some of those emails had to be long almost by necessity, and that certainly tunes students out pretty quickly when they see a long email. They're already ready to delete it. I had some experiments with putting together a sort of student council, uh, you know, a, a representative group from across the school that I would meet with regularly, but that was kind of um, sidetracked by the pandemic and the inability to get together. So, so that remains a challenge, you know, how we communicate with students, how we let them know what's going on inside the school. And then, you know, more to the point that you were making, uh, how we recognize who in our communities, both students, faculty, and staff too, who's vulnerable, who needs that extra communication, who needs that reach out, you know, that extra level of connection. Maybe it's not going to everybody. It doesn't have to be a blanket email, but I'm uh, finding ways to, uh, you know, to have regular meetings with people who I know are at some sort of risk. And I am, by the way, seeing, I am, I am seeing that, I am seeing the stress take different kinds of forms for faculty and staff that are, you know, really having impact on their health. Yeah. And I think by the same token, right, figuring out how to build processes, not only to communicate to those communities, but also for them to learn from them, right? So my final question for each of you is, what bit of advice or what would you like to see around thinking differently about practices and principles of leadership, learning from this moment. Charlie, what do you want to take away? What have you learned or what do you want others in leadership positions to learn from this moment about how to better lead? It's a great question and a very hard question to answer. Um, I guess I would begin with, uh, you know, what you want to recognize, I think, in any communication that comes from leadership is a kind of empathy, a kind of acknowledgement of the difficulty of the situation that you're in. But it has to be empathy that's based on particularity. If it's so generalized and if it's repetitive, if it's always the same phrasing, if it's always the same um, points being made, you know, if you're always using the same vocabulary, what that's signaling to me is that you're not thinking about the particular qualities of your audience, the particular lived experience of your audience. That might require extra communication or more customized communication, sort of what we were just talking about with Steve. But I think it actually goes um, in the opposite direction if you don't engage in that sort of thing. It becomes a, a kind of perception that that the leader, the leadership that's communicating with you is, um, you know, is kind of communicating through a template. You know, we talked about industrial scaled education, you know, industrial scaled um, content delivery. Uh, there's industrial scale communication as well. And I think when you're communicating to a diverse community, 
a very heterogeneous community, you know, everybody doing something different, having different sorts of experiences. That kind of more homogenous communication is off-putting, you know, can actually do more damage, I think, than benefit. What about for you, Steve? What would you like listeners to take away when they think about leadership roles and how to be more effective? I think believe in the power and the wisdom of the the group, individually and collectively, to trust and believe that people will make better decisions together than you can. If you think you can make a better decision than the group, you've lost your group. I think that's a nice, succinct way of really describing what I was trying to get at in my uh, statement, Steve. Uh, you know, I think out of empathy is an acknowledgement of uh, solidarity and an acknowledgement that you're all in it together and that others may have ideas, you know, that benefit the collective. And if you imagine that you've got all the answers or that this is all on you to solve, you lose the group right away. I think that's a great place to end. Uh, so thank you both so much for this conversation. Listeners can keep up with ICS by following us on Twitter and Instagram at ICSBGSU and on our Facebook page. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Our producers are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza with sound editing by Marco Mendoza. Research assistance was provided by Carrie Hanlon. <laughs>